0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Everything Interesting Under the Sun. Today, we have an enigmatic individual joining us, Mr. Timothy Miller. Tim is something like the real-life will-hunting. If you don't get that reference, then stop what you're doing and watch Good Will Hunting. It's one of my all-time favorite movies and you'll not regret it. In any case, back to the introduction. Tim lives at the intersection of artistry and scholarship. Some might say he's a renaissance man. As a result of this, Tim spends his life infusing the beauty and elegance of art into the field of science. Enough of the introduction, though. Here's my conversation with Tim Miller. You're
1: listening to Everything Interesting the
0: So thank you, Tim. Thanks
1: for having me on, Ethan. That was that was a compelling introduction and very flattering. Of it course, the beauty of art into science. I, I like that.
0: It took me some time to come up with it, but that's, you know, you know, I gotta that's, flatter that's, you.
1: That's good. Well, I appreciate that. As a fellow writer, I appreciate that you of took the t- that you took the time to say something, write some, craft some kind words to say about me and your show.
0: Of course, of course. So let's get into it. You, I, I mentioned that you're the something like the real life Goodwill hunting. So could you get into the details of that for the listeners that are not? familiar with you
1: (laughs) sure uh i'm i'm first of all i'm glad i wasn't sure uh if when i we talked over email a little bit about this before the interview uh and i wasn't sure when i told you that that you would even know that reference because that movie came out before you were born uh so i'm glad to hear that you uh are in fact familiar with that film yeah so it's i've been telling friends about this um recently because i think that uh my life story is in a lot of ways uh, similar to that character's. And that film uh, was actually influential in my own life in a really kind of important way. So I first heard about that movie while I was an undergraduate student at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks. It was May. And I went to check my mail and I got uh, the letter from the school saying that I had officially been kicked out of school because i got into trouble for getting drunk on campus and our punishment was we were supposed to write a essay explaining why we thought what we did was wrong and we were very sorry and i because i was an angry and troubled young man instead wrote an essay about how i had registered for the selective service and was prepared to go fight for my country and the idea that i could be prevented from having uh, enjoying a beverage of my choice in a land in which i was required to kill was prima facie preposterous Mm. Uh, And then submitted that instead as my sort of protest letter and got kicked out of school. So um, on the same day that I got, and I knew that was coming, but on the same day that I got the official letter of you're kicked out, I got a letter from my grandparents who lived back in New Hampshire. And uh, it said, and they had been uh, influential in my life because my parents got married young and then got divorced and were not uh, super present as parents. But my grandparents watched out for us a lot. And they said, Tim, we we went to the movies last night in Hanover and we saw this movie that instantly made us think of you and we wanted to go see it. It's called Goodwill Hunting. Here's $10. Go watch this movie. Uh, and so I did. And I was like, uh, I think, at, man, I mean, I loved it, but I think at first, kind of like, uh, Angry at them because I was like, "Who the fuck are these two kids, Matt and Ben? Like, these are kids my age. Like, what the fuck? The, the, this." Is... And then I looked it up. Like, they know Kevin Smith, and like he's just was just a shit kicking kid from the suburbs, like we were. Because we, I was like a movie nerd. My, my older brother um, worked at the local video store when I was a young kid, and I had like a paper route that ended at the local video store. So I had like had VHS my way through like a lot of the oeuvre of film, and the filmmaking of Kevin Smith in particular, Clerks and Mallrats, was like a thing that we knew about because he was a super indie guy who had just like borrowed some money to you know get this 60 millimeter black and white camera and made this movie Clerks that was really like just kids in the convenience store talking, but talking in a in a way that we recognized and understood. So anyway, the film, I was like, oh, that's, uh, you know, I, I should be t- telling stories or I should be, like, out in Hollywood. And how come they're making this author awesome movie? But, of course, I loved it. Uh, and I had a group of friends, not unlike Will's sort of group of three friends, that we cruised around with. And they, we all sort of saw me as the, like, Will hunting character of our group of four friends because I was the, this, like, gifted student who had kept getting into trouble. Uh, and so I had this, my one childhood friend who's sort of my Chucky, like in the movie that's Will, Ben, Matt Damon plays Will Hunting and Ben Affleck plays his friend Chucky. So I had my best friend who's kind of like my Chucky. And I remember one, uh, after I got kicked out of school, we lived together in this little town in Vermont at this, and we worked at this ski shop and we weren't in college and we're, I didn't think I was going back and. Um, I remember one day I drove to campus at Dartmouth, which is where my father had gone to school, and my family was kind of like a Dartmouth family. And, uh, I just like sat in this little bench on the green looking at the students getting on the bus and watching these Ivy League kids and thinking to myself, you know, I've ruined my whole life. Like, I, I am a, fa- a failure. And I blamed myself for that and thought, you know, this is all. I, I screwed this whole thing up.
0: How old were you at this time?
1: Uh, probably 20, I guess, 19 or 20 years mm. old. Um, and so I went home to my, you know, couch and, uh, my friend, my Chucky was like, well, why don't you fucking, you know, goodwill hunting it Like, go back to school. And I was like, dude, that's a movie. Like, what am I going to do? Go to Dartmouth and say, I want a job cleaning the floors, but only in the building where all you have to do is solve the secret math problem. And you get two super dads and a great job and a cool girlfriend. And he was like, no, like, why don't you apply yourself and go back to school? We live in Vermont. Don't they have a university here? And I was like, I don't know, some state school, maybe who knows? (laughs) Um, but I went applied and went back to college uh, and cause he was like, dude, like you should, you know, make something of yourself. Um, And I applied and went back to college and spent a year at UVM studying really hard and like trying to distinguish myself as a student, which going to college after you've like had a real job and had to pay your rent and live with regular life is like, I think a little easier. Um, And I did really well at UVM and then transferred and got into Dartmouth. And so, less than four years after I'd been sitting on the green thinking about how I was a failure, I was back on the green, graduating with honors and a, with a physics degree. Um, and I think at Dartmouth, I was like, because I was a couple years older than everybody and like a little more sort of rough around the edges. Um, I think that I sort of seemed like that sort of scary, but maybe slightly sexy um, <laughs> thing about Will Hunting. Uh, and there, and one of the. Um, girls who my friends used to joke with me had a crush on me, went on to have a very famous professional crush on Matt Damon and on that film. Oh, her name, her name was Minnie go. Kaling. Um, oh, were you serious? Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. I knew her in college. And so on, on my like biggest ego days when I'm feeling super good about myself, I like to flatter myself to pretend that her whole like Matt Damon thing is really inspired by you. secretly yeah. her college crush. On me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm curious. Why did you choose physics as your degree after struggling in school initially and then going for the one of the hardest degrees yeah
1: that's a good question uh because it was one of the hardest degrees pretty much like i had been a theater major in alaska um i knew that i was interested in storytelling and in the arts but i felt like uh i wanted to know both math and science and something about the arts and i my instinct was that if you tried to learn the technical math shit younger, it would be easier to go back and learn the theater stuff later rather than learning the theater stuff in your twenties and then trying to learn math and science in your thirties and forties. Um, and I, and frankly, because it was like, I had some like chest pounding ego thing about like, I want to go to the best school and study the hardest thing there is because I've, I, I think largely to sort of, hoping that i would validate my own sense of myself as an imposter right like thinking like well i thought i was a smart kid in high school but if i get into a really good school and go study the really hard smart stuff i'll meet the really smart kids and learn that i'm not as smart as i think i am Um, which is not exactly how it went down um
0: but that's why i did it so it was inspired by the younger self the one that was struggling
1: yeah, I think I think it, w- I, it was kind of like physics because I had something to prove sort of. But also and not for nothing uh, physics, because I was really fascinated by it. I mean, I um, was mostly like an astronomy focus and I didn't really even know before I got to college that astronomy was a branch of physics. I was like, I just want to study the stars. Like I liked science fiction and I wanted to build spaceships or some shit. I don't know. Uh, and they said, well, that's really – you have to get a physics degree. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that sounds hard. Okay, fine. Um, And so it's – the but it, physics still is interesting to me, and I'm still doing a little bit of work now. I'm trying to get back to work on a project with um, a group of cosmologists who are the physicists who study the very early origins of the universe. And the reason that's fascinating to me is that physics is like the science that gets all the way to storytelling, right? Like science – on its own is a kind of storytelling and it does have a story to tell about the whole world. Like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? And the cosmologists have what they claim is an answer for that. Like they say they know what the universe looked like 13.8 billion years ago or whatever. And it was a hot, dense soup of plasma, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so that's interesting to me because it's because every culture around the world, every religion, every uh, tradition has an origin story of how the world came to be. And ours is, there was this big explosion 13.8 billion years ago, and we're just sort of drifting apart from one another as a result of that. And that's a uniquely, like, uninspiring <laughs> story, right? Uh, so that's interesting to me because it's – and it's and I feel super lucky that I occasionally get to work with those people because I, like, go to their meetings, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, you guys are – seem you seem so lost in the weeds to me of, like – what they're trying to do is characterize this very specific number based on a very very precise measurement of a very slight variation of a kind of heat that you can see everywhere in the sky but you can't but it's not at all related to anything you can see with the naked eye and so that seems kind of esoteric you know what i mean because it's like you guys care so much about that number but like what does that mean to anybody and and do we why does science have to tell a story about the world that seems so bleak, right? Like the evolution is ah oh, just totally random, who knows why it happens. There's no there's no nothing divine, nothing inspiring about that. You know, the big bang, ah, it just happened, it's just explosion. You know, what's where are we all going Ah, It's climate change, it's, we're all just going to heat death. And you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. science is a very uh is, is science is like a buzzkill about it's kind of depressing. Yeah, it? yeah, about about everything almost. Uh, and so I'm interested in that question. Why is that so? and And is that necessary, or is it a result of science kind of being built the way it's been built historically?
0: So could you allow could you restate that actual question guys I, was, I wasn't able to pick up on what the actual one was. So, so
1: the actual question is, is the fact that science seems like the least fun guy at a party, right <laughs> an accident? Or is it necessary, right? Or, or is it a thing that happened because most scientists stopped caring about telling stories that made people feel good? Uh, I think the answer – I mean, that's this is, this is a strictly rhetorical question. It is my position that we could craft a science which uh, does – absolutely agree with observation and experiment and explain the phenomenon that we see and make sense and is internally consistent mathematically, but also is designed to be, like, pleasing or, like, emotionally satisfying or somehow spiritually, like, wholesome, um, I, I think that that's a, a thing toward which we should strive. And, I, and it, it's in, you said in, in the introduction I infuse something of the arts into the blah, blah, blah. You said
0: the beauty it. and elegance yeah, of you said You said science. it very well. I appreciate it.
1: Um, wh- I think of what I'm trying to do as a reunion of the arts and the sciences, is a, a reunification of two strands of human thought that were unnaturally and unnecessarily bifurcated in the 19th century. So like... Every scholar from antiquity through Hellenistic times, through the medieval period, through the Renaissance, through the Enlightenment, even Newton, Benjamin Franklin, viewed the arts and the sciences as two complementary and necessarily co-operating forces that every single human mind must be able to employ when trying to solve one problem, and that must be equal partners. Uh, in working toward any sort of social goal, right? They thought that the arts and the sciences were equally important. They thought that they were both necessary modes of understanding the world. Now, it's also true that until about the Enlightenment, uh, almost everybody thought that they were both sort of subservient to the will of some powerful god that was going to tell them what to do. So religion played a big role there as well. However, the arts and the sciences worked together. They were uh, never in, in conflict. And it's not uh, coincidental that the, the great thinkers of history uh, Leonardo or Aristotle worked in both of those spaces they made big contributions to science and they made big, big contributions in the arts um, so I don't what what I do sounds to people like oh you're trying to combine two totally different things I'm like no 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 I'm trying to take two things that you artificially and unfairly divorced from one another and
0: marry them together again are you familiar with Occam's razor
1: yeah that's the uh the simple idea that given two explanations all things being equal the simpler explanation is usually
0: the right one so do you think that this has any influence on what you're just mentioning about the separation between science and art Uh, because it kind of removes the storytelling because storytelling in my eyes you're always like instead of getting to the point you're adding some uh superficial details to make it more entertaining do you think occam's razor has any effect on the art or on the separation of science and art
1: uh, I think that the kind of like strictly rational thinking that Occam's razor represents has uh, an influence on the separation of science and art. Yeah. I think the separation of science and art happened as a result of the industrial revolution, sort of at the end of the industrial revolution um, and happened in the academy because it was like, okay, well we want to train people to do like as, as the, as the, academies became formal kind of university systems. Mostly the Germans did this, I think, and the, the Americans and the British um, innovated it a little bit as well. Uh, but because as we got more formal in the way we taught people things, that's what caused us to then branch into, okay, we're going to have some people who teach one thing and some people who teach another thing. And I think that the, the push to um, separate the arts and the sciences was largely a push to get the arts out in a in a desire to uh, use education to produce people who could make things you know what I mean because in the industrial revolution as you're in, in the mid 19th century the mid 1800s railroads are becoming a thing all of a sudden and mass materials are being moved across continents all of a sudden for the first time there becomes a desire to have a technically trained workforce that can do things, that can pour steel, that can build bridges, that can do math, that can, like, all of a sudden you need mathematics, you need learning to, like, participate in this new economy. And so I think a a system of teaching developed that focused on those raw skills at the expense of any of the artistic stuff. It was like, okay, including up through universities. Like, just go train engineers so they can solve math problems and build a bridge that doesn't fall down because now we have trains and we need bridges that don't fall down um we did it as an expedient to try and get you know jumpstart that new economy um so yeah i mean the i think and occam i'd have to look this up but i suspect occam is probably a philosopher of like late 18th century 17 something or early 1800s and it's that kind of thinking right like just distill it down get the simple version get it done get the expedient uh, solution implemented
0: yeah it's interesting in my own life i have always viewed myself to be more of a scientific person but recently during the pandemic, I've, I've introduced myself to learning about the piano. And through that, I learned that music is all about mathematics and like the music theory and all that. Like the false dichotomy in my head of science versus art. Like science and math and all these kinds of technical aspects are infused in art as well, like music theory and, and artistry. And like the, fu- uh, I'm, I'm reading this book about, it's called Deep Nutrition right now. And one of the things it mentions is that. Humans have an innate sense of beauty, and this beauty is inspired by the phi proportion, which I don't know if that like. It's like some equation, but this equation, once uh, once you, you realize, once you see it, it's not like it's subconscious. But based on this subconscious feature, you're able to determine that this person is beautiful and that's, like, beauty is art. Like, art is beautiful, and this is inspired by mathematics and proportionality and ratios and all that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. that The farther I've gone in my career, the more I've discovered how connected the things are, right? So the um, one of my uh, closest fr- uh, friends in college who, uh, who I knew primarily because we sang in an a cappella group together and were both physics majors is a well-known screenwriter in Hollywood who, like, runs big shows, you know? And there are a surprising number of, uh, writers that I, that I know of in Hollywood who have some kind of technical training, like not just an advanced degree, but advanced degree in some kind of, um, scientific field and writing in particular, like, uh, fiction writing is very like structural and, um, diagrammatic at times. And, um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of technical crossovers. And I think too, that the, um, we, for a long time in this country, have fallen into a bit of trying to tell especially young people that there's like two types of people you're either a math person or an arts person you're a science person or you're a creative type and like that's bullshit like (laughs) you know we tell people I think schools and systems told people that because it was like okay we have two teachers one knows how to teach art one knows how to teach science so we're going to split the kids into two groups kind of Um, I think that's a false dichotomy Yeah.
0: so what I mentioned was the flow of science into creativity or technical or technicality into creativity would you say like what examples could you give of creativity flowing into science to make it more of a bi-directional flow
1: that's a great question i mean i think there's actually a tremendous amount of creativity required in science and that one of the things that you'll hear um senior scientists complain about in terms of uh trying to find new talent is that it's hard to find people who are creative problem solvers who think creatively and part of the the root cause of that i think is that as the education system has shifted more and more to a sort of metrics-based assessment model in which there's going to be lots of standardized testing and there's going to be lots of data points and there's going to be lots of you know measuring and sizing people up students just naturally can kind of sniff that out and they sense that there's a like sort of standardized behavior that is expected of them success in uh academic progress for most young people is about meeting certain benchmarks you know what i mean performing as expected and if you do then you've met the target and you're doing really well but as you get into any higher um scholarship you can't do that anymore because you're trying to think of the questions not go find the answers um and so i talk about this all the time with um colleagues of mine, uh, faculty members and researchers, that doing science is not at all about going to, find, or very little about, the hard part of doing the science is not finding the answer. The hard part of doing the science is thinking of the question. And so we're good at training people to find answers, but we're not at all good at training people to think of questions. And I think that uh, thinking of questions thing uh, is a thing that people can learn uh, from the arts. I should also say, like, for a more concrete example, one of the things that I did is for a while there was a um, a 20th century American actor named Alan Alda who was well-known because he hosted a scientific television show called Scientific American Frontiers, who people your age probably have never heard of, but who was pretty famous among, like, my mom's generation. And so he, late in his career, founded a thing called the Alda Center for Communicating Science. And he ran a number of workshops in which we went to, and I worked for him as one of the workshop facilitators. And we went to, like, Stanford and Caltech and the University of Chicago and did these workshops with, like, the most senior scientists that they had because everybody was so excited to come work with Alan Alda, this famous actor. And what we did with them was, like, the same workshops and drills that we do at improv theater classes all across the country right we we literally did improv theater shit with them and they loved it like they went home being like oh my god it was transformational and i know so much more about my work and i feel like i learned so much about my colleagues and um it's unfortunate that i feel like it required sort of the star power of him to defuse or to just outshine everyone else's ego enough for them to be vulnerable and like expose themselves a little bit uh, and that's why those sessions were so good. Um, But uh, that's a a very concrete example of like scientists who participated in a creative, were forced to participate in a creative activity um, and who, you know, reported back like, wow, I got something very positive out of this. I feel like I'm more capable as a communicator.
0: Going back to what you're mentioning about in higher education, it's more uh, the, the, the focus is more about finding the answer as opposed to solving the problem. I out the exact way you you it, elaborated. The, it. Uh,
1: in in science, the hard part is not finding the answer. The hard part is thinking of the question.
0: Yeah. So that statement resonates with me so heavily because um, this is my first year of masters or first semester of masters. Undergrad was all about like the metric base thing. You go, oh, you got to get an A. You got to do well in your exams. All this. And then transitioning into grad school where it's research focused you have to be creative you have to come up with these solutions yourself these these solutions to the problems that you're working on are not in this world for you to just research like you have to you have to what's the word i'm looking for you have to figure it out your for lack of a better word you have to figure it out yourself you have to do your own research and have the breadth of knowledge to be able to build off of that and find your own solution and it's interesting there's specific degrees that i've uh, in my time, I've learned where these kinds of people, they're very focused on the metrics because that's the way it's set up. Like for instance, pre-med students, they're all, they have to have a 4.0. They, they must do well in every single thing or else they're not getting into med school. From my experience, that doesn't really breed knowledge. That breeds obedience. Like that, that's a very cliche thing to say, but you're just teaching these people to do well in their expectation. But like bring it back to myself, I, like I, I was doing well in my expectation of getting good grades. But once you come into grad school, there's no expectation. The expectation is for you to produce good research. This good research is up to you. What is good and what is not. Like one of my, one of my professors this semester, he always mentions how undergraduate school or undergrad is what, what is termed as full satisfaction and graduate school is partial satisfaction. So full satisfaction means your goals are laid out for you. Everything is there for you to, to accomplish. You know what you need to do. But in graduate school, which is partial partial satisfaction, it's up to you what you want to do. If you want to succeed, you put in as much effort as you want, and that like that's how I. I mean, I'm not in the real world. I'm only in academia right now, so I can't really speak on that. But that's how I interpret the nah, real world to be.
1: You, you got a college degree, you know. You, you're you're pretty much an adult at this point. Yeah. I'd, I'd say you're pretty much in the real world. You're just as much in the real world as I am. Well, thank <laughs> yeah, I, you, thank I, I was like that real world shit looks yeah. like it's terrible, man. I'm gonna stay <laughs> in school for as long as I can.
0: I mean, for me, like I, I was thinking about that as I was walking like around campus this morning, I was just thinking to myself like, wow, I love just seeing all these young people and these beautiful architecture and all that. Like I, I foresee myself staying in academia for like that being a big reason, just seeing this culture of people and everybody just so going about their business.
1: Yeah. I mean, I it's, we're absolutely the beneficiaries of some tremendous privilege and I uh, recognize that. But at the same time, uh, it's a conscious decision on my part to, you know, pursue a career in this industry at which my You know, lifetime earning potential is significantly lower than it would be in a number of other industries, Uh, but because we're I think a smarter about the work life balance in the academy than most of the rest of America is right. Like you can, if you work at a university, you could come into the office on any given day. I don't care what you do, and be like, "Listen, my dog is really sick, so I'm going home right now." And everyone in the office is like, "Oh my god, I hope she feels better." Right? But if you if you work at like lehman brothers or coke you know what i mean you can't come to the office and be like oh my dog's sick like, johnson get back to your desk you know what i mean like it's not that's that's not cool like who cares kill your dog like we're here for profit um so the, we're a little bit more laid back a lot more laid back in the economy and i um, that's why i have like chosen to make my life here
0: i mean i kind of have to push back on that because from what i've like the conversations i've had with professors they always like. Yes, yeah, the expectation is not that you need to meet these profit margins, but the expectation is that you are putting in the time. Like every professor, not every professor, but most professors I've had conversations with, they're working like 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week, and they're not. No, they're not. No, you don't think? I no. mean, the conversations the, the, I've so had.
1: Professors are entitled whiny bitches who will lie to students like you about how hard they work. Like they think they work really hard, and they and there are a lot of people who do put in 80 hours a week, but the people who do put in 80 hours a week Put in eight hours a week because they really want to. Now, it's true that people who are competing on the tenure clock to, like, try and get tenure – we could talk about the whole academic advancement thing if you want. It's pretty boring. But um, there are people who, who are putting in a lot of time and effort trying to punch the clock, trying to, you know, check the box, trying to achieve to a certain level in academia. Um, But not that many. And even those who are are doing it because they're, like, trying to get tenure, which is the thing you get by, like, 40. And what that means is that you have the best job in the world that you can never be fired from for the rest of your life. So, like, we we when you hear someone in academia complaining about how the pressures of this, blah, 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 ask them how much or whether they've ever worked in actual industry, like, outside of academia. Because if the answer is no, then, like, mm, okay. Like, I have at least tried to, like, work in some other industries and worked in the like more administrative corporate sides of academia enough to know that like listen as a professor like (laughs) you got one of the cushiest jobs on the planet and if you are stressed out about it that's because you're driving yourself which there's nothing wrong with that but like don't don't fool don't delude yourself into thinking that's a top-down pressure it's not
0: i'm curious what your opinion is of tenure because from my experience just to give a little preface here uh like i had this professor he was like an 80-year-old. I'm not going to say his name, but he's like an 80-year-old, 90-year-old yeah, man. <laughs> he's like an 80-year-old, 90-year-old man. And the first day of class, he's like, yeah, uh, 75% of you guys are probably going to fail this class. And the rest of you guys will probably get B's. So do as much as you want to do. And like he he had, te- he already had tenure, so he could do whatever he, he wanted to. Obviously. And he's fine. Like, like obviously tenure is, yeah, you should get reward. I mean, I don't know if tenure specifically is how you should get rewarded, but the idea of tenure and the idea that you can just do whatever you want with no repercussions is kind of absurd to me. Well, so
1: I'm interested in, I want to start that conversation by asking you like, what do you know about that? What is that? As far as you know, how does one get it? Why do we give it out? What's the idea? Well, like what was the reasoning behind that
0: reasoning behind him saying that or reasoning? No, the reasoning behind
1: what, what is your understanding of the tenure system? What does it mean for someone to have tenure? And what is your understanding of why that system exists?
0: My understanding is that if you are a, quote unquote, a remarkable professor, then over time you get get a guarantee that you're not going to lose your job and you can essentially, like not, I mean, based this professor, yeah, he acted however he wanted to act. There's also another interesting part about this. I don't know if you've seen the NYU professor that recently got fired despite him having tenure because his students were mentioning that you're not allowing us to succeed and you're preventing us from med school. Have you seen this? I read just the headline. I didn't read the whole story. So that kind of, disputes what I'm saying about tenure. I guess it's kind of like a new situation, but my understanding of tenure is that, yeah, it, if you're a remarkable professor, remarkable at your job, you get rewarded by allowing, or by guaranteeing you of having a job in the future for the reason being that usually academia or academic roles are kind of part-time like adjunct professors or like uh, whatever is beneath an associate professor, like all these kinds of things are not guaranteed as very high turnover. So tenure, Yeah keeps people going, I guess. Okay,
1: so the, I, the idea behind uh, the protections of tenure or the existence of that system was originally that university faculty members needed that ironclad job protection so that they would have the freedom to investigate questions that might be politically unpalatable, right? The idea behind tenure was that pe- a guy who wanted to, or, or a woman who wanted to investigate Political corruption, or the university itself, or um, you know questions that might be uh, of um, uh, troubling to uh, certain religious constituencies, or whatever, right? To to insulate them from either social protest or from uh, retribution on the part of the administration, hiring and firing who they liked and wanted based on what they were researching. That's the idea, right? That in order to have an independent body of scholarship who will be free to go investigate whatever they want in the world they need to have this job protection i
0: mean it, considering that that makes complete sense i can understand why there is tenure
1: it so it, it i think that idea makes sense yeah but what has happened is it's very much more become a thing that we think of as a mark of distinguishment a thing that you get because you're good which often now means you're publishing a lot doesn't necessarily mean that you're investigating anything that's interesting and in a lot of ways, it does the opposite thing of what it was supposed to do. Because since we think of it as a mark of distinguishment, we now then build metrics around how we get it. In most department, like in in the computer, I'm confident in the computer science department at ASU. Whether or not you get tenure is like pretty streamlined in terms of how many publications you have to have, and how many journals with what impact factor, and how many things you need to have printed, whatever, right? But what that means is people who are aspiring to achieve that thing are doing only the kind of research that they know will result in those publications. They're doing the opposite of what the system was supposed to encourage them to do, which to investigate whatever they want based on what they think might be interesting. Um, And I will tell you without getting into any detail that at every single university in America, the number of like dirtbag assholes who are. Harassing or abusing their students and or not even showing up to their jobs and hiding behind the tenure system vastly outnumbers the number of people who are like actively being protected or rewarded by that system. Uh, And I think that and I spent most of my academic career on what we call soft money, meaning I'm like a visiting assistant professor or an assistant professor, conditional reappointments. Every year, I don't know if I'm going to have a job the next year. And people are like, oh, my God, how do you deal with that? It's so stressful. Oh, my God, how can you how can you go on? I'm like, motherfucker, most Americans face that every week. Like every Friday, they're thinking to themselves, I don't know if my boss is going to come in and say, the company's going out of business. Everybody's fired. Go home. Like that happens to everybody. Everybody faces that pressure. And the idea that you think that you – having to wonder about your job security once a year is somehow like so terrifying that you have to have this locked in. Oh no no, no. I know my salary is coming no matter what I do for the rest of my life. Like that's just not um, a sustainable solution in my opinion. It's not um, a like great system anymore. How you dismantle that and tear it down is complicated. I think that uh, the financial pressures that higher education is now facing, as a direct result of pandemic and people questioning the cost of education, will force some changes in the tenure system in the next ten years.
0: I mean, hopefully, yeah. Like education, I, I don't know the specifics that goes into why tuition is so expensive, but in terms of like out of state students versus in state, out of state specifically to ASU, out of state, from my knowledge, was as an undergrad was uh, twelve thousand a year versus as out of state is $40,000 a year. Like, where does this, what is the reason for this insane increase in pricing? And
1: That's a complicated historical question that has a lot to do with both the, like, inflation across the American economy generally and and some, like, competitive pricing thing that happened in higher ed. The the reason that tuition pricing went insane relative to other things is that there were a handful of, like, second-tier liberal arts schools who said to themselves... I bet we would be more competitive at recruiting uh, kids who from privileged backgrounds, but who aren't super high scholastic achievers. If all we did was raise our tuition prices so that tuition was just as expensive as it was at the most expensive liberal arts schools, and it worked. So, like Gettysburg College or whatever started being like, okay, instead of twenty two thousand, we're thirty nine. And some parents were like, "Well, Gettysburg must be better." So then Harvard was like, "Well, fuck. If Gettysburg's 39. We got to be like 42." You know what I mean? And so then it, it's like that's basically what drove that thing. Um and it sort of went insane from there. And and in, the, in what's interesting is that the price of like the Ivies, which was already insanely high, kind of stayed at its like it, it didn't increase wildly dramatically at the at the top schools because it was already really expensive. And as the price pressures have gone crazy, the best undergraduate institutions have gone into this like differential pricing where uh, privileged kids pay this very, very high price, uh, but less privileged students pay nothing, and they won't subsidize it with loans anymore. They're like, no, it's going to be 100% aid. We won't let undergrads leave in debt, which I think is kind of cool.
0: Well, to change gears here now a little bit, you have a book titled The Muse of Fire, and it's regarding the art of storytelling. So can you discuss that a little bit? Because I'm very curious. <laughs> uh, sure.
1: So I wrote a textbook in 2015 called Muse of Fire, Storytelling and the Art of Science Communication, uh, which I would love to uh, write and release a like revised and expanded second edition of now, because I, uh, in the last seven or eight years since I wrote that book, um, have done some new stuff and, and would have more different, better things to say. Uh, but so, what was your question about that book? What, what what was it about? Or
0: it's like the art of storytelling. How do you yeah. like? What is the importance of that throughout history? And how <laughs> is it evolved? Or how is it? A- Contributed to the evolution of humans.
1: Yeah. So th- I mean, that's a great question. There's actually a great book by a guy named, I hope I'm going to get his name right, Jonathan Gottschall. Oh, sorry. have a quote by him written down here. He wrote this book called The Storytelling Animal, which in which he basically posits the theory that gathering around campfires and telling stories is what made us human, right? And it's interesting interesting evolutionary thing that happened to proto-humans in Africa where we've started sort of camping and then our brains developed all at the same time. And um, so there's a very interesting interplay and connection of the, the origin of language uh, and the origin of story, I think are kind of the same thing and often tied together or probably tied together somehow in the anthropological record. So anyway, story, I think storytelling is uh, a very, very, very fundamental thing that humans learn to do basically as soon as we became human right like it predates not just history but like culture like it's the sort of foundational thing upon which culture was built um yeah it's super 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 low level which it, which makes it awesome and, and powerful and so the basic thesis of that book and it, uh, to the extent that there is one of the thesis of my like work is that the way to improve uh, communication And really the conduct of the sciences, the way to improve science um, is to encourage scientists to learn and to use the tools and techniques of the arts, because how you tell stories, what structure a story has, how you need to introduce the elements of uh, a story this is a thing that's very well understood in the arts. This is a thing that so like I was here at ASU. I'm here on campus at ASU with you, Ethan, because I was consulting for um, an arm of uh, Ed Plus here at ASU and teaching them about communications. But as I told them, the stuff that we talked about is the same or th- exactly the same concepts that I'd be covering in the first week of a screenwriting class with undergrads who had come to the University of Connecticut wanting to study filmmaking. Um, So it's not the, the, the ideas that I am trying to teach are not original ideas, nor are they unique to me. They're just in a field of the academy that's so remote from science and scientists that most people have never seen it. And that because people are told, oh, you're a math and science person and they're told to take calculus instead of drawing, um, you can get pretty far in your career and not ever learn those techniques. So my work is basically sort of trying, I I am like a teacher of remedial art to scientists, um, which has been kind of fun.
0: It's interesting what you were saying about how proto-humans, they evolved through the art of storytelling. That's kind of the research that I'm currently doing is the, the how proto-humans evolved through language and how that increased their conscious mind and enabled them to share stories and abstract ideas and all that and that interesting is, coincides with the art of storytelling what like what uh, significant ideas could you share about the art of storytelling because obviously podcasting that is storytelling that's trying to create a story in a sense like what specific things would you could you just share like quick facts
1: uh, sure I mean the the, um, the basic idea of narrative of uh, is really, really simple. Uh, and the best screenwriting professor I had is now the director of the uh, Screen television Writing Program at the University of Southern California. His name is Tom Abrams. And he used to say, every story has the same structure. Somebody wants something badly, but has trouble getting it. And so uh, every movie or um, great epic that you've seen, every um, play or, or you know well-known story, has exactly that structure the odyssey uh begins sing O muse of the storm-tossed man who wandered long after he sacked the sacred citadel of troy seeking home or something whatever um it introduces a guy odysseus and says here's his objective he's trying to get home and that is why we pay attention to the odyssey because we want to know oh is odysseus going to get home or not um in the Lord of the Rings, we learn that Frodo and Sam need to go destroy the ring. Why? Because it's well, the forces of darkness. It, it will be bad. Suffice to say, right? Um, and we learn that in the very beginning. And so we watch the whole movie, we read the whole book because we want to know: does, does Frodo destroy the ring or not? You know, what I mean, in love stories, we meet Romeo and Juliet. We know they're in love, but they something that keeps them apart in the very beginning. And so we want to know: does that? How does that turn out? Um, so. In structural terms, we talk about protagonists and antagonists and objectives, but basically, the idea behind storytelling is if you want someone to, if you want to frame things as a narrative, tell them a story about someone, doesn't have to be a person, but someone, that's the protagonist, wants something, that's the objective, uh, and has trouble, that's the antagonist, getting it. And if you just think about that, somebody has trouble, somebody wants something and has trouble getting it, and then think of any movie. Um or story that you like, uh, and you'll see that it has that structure. Goodwill Hunting is a good example, right? You learn that uh, Will—it's a little muddled, actually, in its narrative—but like, it ends up just being a love story, right? Like he meets Skylar. We know that he wants to be together with Skylar. It seems that what keeping them apart is the fact that she's rich and in a good school, and he's a shit kid who can't stand out of trouble. So, will they get together or not? I don't know. That's why I keep watching the movie. And there's a um, famous like. There's a lot of famous like. Uh, Back channel shit about that film and the script because Matt Damon and Ben Affleck wrote that movie, but there were a number of people in Hollywood who were like, ah, whatever. That no, they didn't. Like it's too good. They didn't really write it themselves. And there's a famous screenwriter named William Goldman who the rumor was had like doctored up that script. And Mindy Kaling, her like first claim to fame is she wrote a play called Matt and Ben, in which Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are on stage, played by <laughs> Mindy and her friend, her friend Brenda. And a a finished movie script falls from the sky at the opening minute of the play and lands on the floor. And, like, the whole whole joke is, like, this movie's too good. They couldn't have possibly written it. Um, But I think that the... that they probably did write that whole thing, and that if Bill Goldman did see it, he probably said, eh, you know, it's basically like Butch and Sundance go with God. Like, that movie is a lot like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and that it's really a movie about the two guys and the relationship between them. And there is a woman involved, but she's really not that important character in a lot of ways. Um, so anyway, that's the basic idea behind narrative is you do that. You tell a story about somebody who wants something badly and has trouble getting it. You introduce the someone and their objective, the thing they want in the beginning, And that's what motivates the audience's uh, desire to follow the story. We call that the narrative proposition. And you introduce the proposition in the beginning, that's what uh, causes the audience to make the emotional investment in wanting to know the rest of the story.
0: I mean, just adding to that quote you gave, there's a quote I also recently read by Leo Tolstoy. And it says, I'm gonna butcher it probably, but it says that in literature, every good story is either somebody coming to town or somebody going on a journey. That's exactly what you were saying. Yeah, no,
1: that's right. um, And it's someone comes to town wanting something or someone comes to town and everybody in town wants them to leave. Yeah. Um, A lot of people talk about, especially in screenwriting circles, if you spend any time in Hollywood to hear people talk about a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces by a guy named Joseph Campbell. Um, And that... Book is all talks about a famous hero's journey, and he he uh, describes in great detail a thing he calls the mono myth that there's one kind of master myth that all cultures are just telling a slightly different version of. There's a lot of people in Hollywood who think of that as like, oh, that's the manual for how to write great movies. And if you buy a copy of that book, there's like a picture of Luke Skywalker on the cover. The book's not really at all about how to write screenplays. Campbell's talking about how we in modern society have evicted real mythology from our minds. And that's resulted in a kind of like artistic and spiritual impoverishment. Uh, But uh George Lucas, after Star Wars came out, was like, I read this book by Joseph Campbell. It really helped me. And Joseph Campbell was like, fuck yeah, you did. <laughs> I helped write Star Wars. And so they like did this kind of mutual love fest uh, ex post facto, like after the fact, they sort of pretended like the, the, that book was super useful in star wars or whatever um but so anyway it's a th- there is quite a bit of interesting scholarship
0: about these questions about how powerful
1: it is and the answer is it seems to be very very powerful
0: yeah i mean just thinking about it from like a mythological point of view and religious point of view christianity and norse mythology and the store or the epic of gilgamesh like all of these follow i haven't looked into them this is what i've i've heard but all of these follow similar Arcs of characters where there's somebody that, yeah, exactly what you're saying. There's somebody that is trying to achieve a goal, there's a obstacle, there's an like antagonist, and all that, and that, that follows the narrative structure that you're mentioning. It's very fine grained within our history.
1: Yeah, and it's also, I mean, I think that narratives are so ingrained in us that we will see them even when they're not there. There's a famous um, series of psychological experiments from the 1950s in which, um, participants are shown animations of like a square and a triangle moving around the screen and asked to describe it they say oh one's chasing the other because he's afraid or one wants protection from the other because the big scary circles are coming to get them like they ascribe desires ambitions uh, motivations to these simple geometric shapes that are doing nothing but moving across the screen we see it even when it isn't really there Uh, and so we talked a little bit about this with the group I was with here at ASU but that's incredibly important when you're talking about people's perceptions of things like public policy. So here in Arizona, I've seen a lot of political advertising just on TV while I've been here. And the question of illegal immigration is one of narratives, right? Like if you ascribe to a narrative where you, what you believe is, uh, the reason that, uh, people in America, the reason it's so hard to find a job in America is that um, a bunch of people have entered the country illegally and they're participating for those jobs unfairly and that's why it's so hard for um, people like you to find a job. Well, that narrative like feels very compelling to a certain group of people and it's like, yeah, of course, I, I, I'm the protagonist and all I want is a chance to compete for a good job and these illegals are the antagonists that are making my life so hard. And I think that people who are reasonable about that or people who are on the other side of that debate, which I am, say uh in fact what you're seeing are people who are coming to this country because they want work and to make a better life for themselves and their kids which is the reason people have always come to this country but a system which prevents them from entering legally so that you don't have to pay them as much you don't have to give them health insurance you don't you can't allow them to organize into organized labor etc cetera, etc cetera. like if what you wanted to do was uh prevent it's just like it's a in my opinion, a sort of false debate, right? Where people are given a thing to hate, to distract their attention. Oh, be mad at at people who are immigrating to this country trying to get a job. When really the problem is the economy that allows people to employ people who come to this country um, without uh, legal status so that they can work illegally, right? Like the system is clearly designed to keep people coming into this country who aren't American citizens and to keep them working with status as illegals like that's how we've done it for the last 40 years so clearly like who, who's that benefiting that's the real question if you wanted meaningful change on that you would be targeting those people but we never talk about that instead we give both groups competing narratives and let them fight with one another
0: once again to change gears so we were earlier talking about some of the things you wanted to discuss on this podcast and one of the things you mentioned was the quote unquote failed promise of the internet what oh, is yeah. your thought on this? <laughs> the failed—that's interesting.
1: The failed promise in of the internet. Uh, what well, I've been thinking recently that, like, I when people say the internet, I no longer now know what they mean. Like in 1999, I think I understood what the internet was or was going to be. In 2000 or 2001, I think I understood it too, and that was, you know, this like open kind of landscape, this new frontier that we were going to create without conquest or genocide, this new like world in which, and this wild Western frontier where anybody could go out and like set up their own stake a claim on their own, you know, uh, IP address and build whatever they wanted. And, and people who would come see it or not. And you know what I mean? It was like a very open, uh, architecture. It just had all this sense of sort of possibility and promise to it. Uh, and what happened, like, really really fast is that almost all of that space feels like it got bought up and privatized and what was this promising open range is now this like very carefully cultivated and curated landscaped garden where you can go if you want but they follow you around everywhere and like it's it feels so far removed from the sense of like hope and optimism that I had about it 20 years ago. Um, Because the thing that we have now is like not, is, the thing that we have now is a system which is incredibly powerful in its ability to model and predict and manipulate people's behavior, right? Because the devices are so integrated into our lives and we use them for absolutely everything. And we now daily generate this mountainous, this huge stream of data from our lives, right? Every event that we do is now a data event. And the way the current landscape works, it's perfectly legal in America for all of that data to be harvested by a tiny handful of privately controlled companies that have absolutely no oversight or regulation or transparency to what they're doing or how they're collating that or how they're building models of people's behavior or how they're using it to manipulate or how they sell those services. And so those systems now have an absolutely mind boggling ability to manipulate human behavior. Uh, they're doing that. They're selling that service to the highest bidder all around the world, whatever you want. Go. do you want to manipulate people's behavior just tell us how and we'll do it for you cuz it makes us rich and that's incredibly dangerous in a country that relies on an informed citizenry to do democracy because it's those systems are absolutely being used to do things like drive people away from the polls like how hard is it to use if if i really want if i took over your if i could take over your phone how hard would it be for me to keep you away from the polling place on election day Like, not that hard. You know what I mean? I could, like, offer you tickets to something or you won something or there's a cool... Somebody's taking cool Instagram pictures somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, just do something. Mm. Get them to just not go to the polling place. I don't have to do it to you. You're a computer science grad student. so You might be a little more savvy. But I know what percentage of my users are dumb. So I just do it to the dumb ones because I only need to push 5% of people away from the polls and I know that this candidate's going to lose.
0: I mean, yeah, that's exactly what Cambridge Analytica do. They're testing with political... Studies, whatever. Yeah, so so,
1: people go, oh, Cambridge Analytica. Because what Cambridge Analytica did was used Facebook to do 1% of the shit that Facebook does all the goddamn time, right? Like, oh, Cambridge Analytica is using this Facebook data to push people's... (laughs) they did what Facebook does. Like all the nasty shit that Cambridge Analytica did, you can just get Facebook to do for you. Like they're, the higher you go, I suspect that the higher you go with that company, the more services suddenly they will offer to you, right? Based on who you are and how much they think they can trust you. Um, that that company in particular, uh, I really think is just like super bad uh, in in terms of the way it got built and what it's used for. Like they, they don't have any real products. Like all they're doing is harvesting our shit. And they have almost everyone now in the system because they have so many platforms that are completely interlinked sort of behind the scenes in terms of sharing their data to build models of us. And as you know, once you get a significant percentage of a population fully tracked, even if there's a percentage of that population that haven't like signed up with your system or your service, it's like the difference between counting electrons and counting holes. You can track the people who aren't on your system just as easily as you can track the people who are. So there's one private American company headquartered in California that now has real-time physical surveillance data of every single American citizen all day long, and they can use that information for whatever they want, sell it to whomever they want, and nobody anywhere in the government or, you know, throughout the population has any right to know anything about what they're doing. And I think that's prima facie preposterous.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I right, I don't think, like, I agree Facebook is, I, I don't think Facebook is a very moral company either, but... Like all the big tech giants are similar to that. Google, for instance, I think Google is just as bad, if not worse. So
1: I think that there are many of the – there's only really a handful of players in the space, right? It's like Google, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook. You could argue Amazon, but it's really just those five companies. I think that all of them, Google, Apple, Apple, and Microsoft, have reluctantly become more invasive and more big brother and less respectful of their users' privacy because they're all chasing Facebook who's by far the worst actor in the space. I think looking at those five companies, Google, well, they make search and they make phones. Microsoft, they make Windows and they make computers. Amazon makes fucking everything. Apple makes phones and laptops. What does Facebook make?
0: What does Twitter make? I mean, I'm sure Twitter probably does the same thing.
1: Twitter uh, exists as a kind of individual stepchild of Facebook that Facebook has allowed to exist in the space just so that they can say that it's not just them they have intentionally not bought Twitter, so they can say they're not the only company that is all of social media. And they, and they don't, and like I've been suspicious of that company from the very beginning. I was, I was at a keg party with some people who were working for the short-lived presidential campaign of uh, Governor Howard Dean, he was a doctor in Vermont who ran for president. In the fall of 2003, I was at this party, and there was a bunch of Harvard kids who were working for him. And I heard the story of Zuckerberg and this like thing he had done at Facemash and blah blah blah. And I was one of the people who was like, that fucking kid should be in jail. Like this is not a prank. That was a very serious crime. He committed a felony. He like pirated people's photographs from the university system. He hacked into it to download everybody's photos, and he did it in this very like mean spirited, like super shitty, like sexually aggressive, nasty way. And and when I heard that story, I was like, "So what are they? What are they doing to that kid?" And they were like, "Oh, well, he's going to go to the ad board. You might get expelled." I was like, "Expelled? He should be in prison. Like they, they should make a case of this." Like, and I got really heated. And a couple of my friends were like, "Dude, calm, it's just the internet. <laughs> down, like, dude. yeah, calm down." And I said, "Dude, this is not a small thing. That is a big deal. This kid. What I said was, if they had come and found him at the university administration building." And there was a hammer hole in a plate glass window, and Mark Zuckerberg had his pants down and a bunch of five 8x10 by, by color glossy photos of girls at Harvard jerking off. Do you think he would have been arrested? And they were like, well, yeah, obviously. I said, well, he, it's exactly the same thing. And his hands were shaking with every single keystroke as he committed the crack to steal people's photographs as they would have been if he were smashing a window to pull them out of a file cabinet. He knew he was breaking the rules, and he knew he was breaking the law. And I think even after that, him and Sean were like, OK, let's like set up this like fake private mail system that just lets people like share photos and whatever, just like MySpace. But we harvest all the data that people feed into it and then we can sell it to build custom advertising. And I think they probably thought to themselves, well, that, like, that's fraudulent. Like, We'll get shut down, won't we? And they thought, yeah, but who cares? You know, like just like Napster, it's technically illegal, but they'll let us do it for a year or two and then shut us down. And then some investor will come to us with like, you know, a good idea to build a like free, open public system that's not so shitty and, you know, fraudulent. But like nobody noticed basically. And I, from the very first time I logged on to Facebook.com, I was like, this is fucking creepy. Like these guys are cheating somehow. And I couldn't, I couldn't tell why, but I just got this like, yeah stranger danger from this website i did not like it from the beginning and so i really believe that they ha- that that one company has really pushed the whole space in this really nasty direction of like just not being transparent with your users about who you are and what you do like if you if that's really a how can anybody sit, tell me with a straight face that that's a product or a service into which any of us opted it's just this like big brother thing hanging over us that you have to deal with whether you like it or not. It's like the Soviet state kind of, you know? And it surveils us and that's shitty. And so um, I think that the promise of that is failed. But but I should say that the that the um, the path forward is not to like, oh I'm gonna ban Facebook or you know, whatever. The path forward is simply to build a public system that works more like a utility. Um, like public parks or public roads, the internet can be a place that's like built with public funds and maintained with public funds so that free and open commerce can happen on it. The car companies wanted to be the ones who built all the highways. They were like, well, just let Ford and Chrysler build the highway. And then Ford will say you can drive on Ford's roads and Chrysler will say you can drive on Chrysler's roads. And, you know what I mean? And President Eisenhower and a, a, Truman and a number of leaders of this country were like, yeah, No. We, the people, will build the roads, and then you, the car companies, can compete on building better cars to drive on them. And that's what made the auto industry the engine of the American economy for a hundred years. Public mail allowed American corporations to be built in the first place. The idea of the corporation was invented here in America in the 1840s and 1850s. But they did it, you know, sending money, sending contracts back and forth, knowing that money had gotten deposited in a bank in Philadelphia, so that you could buy steel in Pittsburgh was a thing that required you know, information flow and that all ran through the most technologically advanced information network in the world, which was the United States Postal System. Um, in 1910, in offices in New York, uh, the mailman came seven times a day. Because that's how like fast you needed shit to come. Like he came with an envelope, you're on, like, bring these contracts over to the thing. Uh, which is why but but they never delivered on sunday which is why the first national uh weekly magazine was named for the last uh mail delivery you'd get of the week it was the saturday evening post
0: Mm, that's interesting
1: uh so when i learned that i was like so okay we did this once before like we built the it's this for me goes back a lot to benjamin franklin because there's i've been watching this ken burns documentary about him Here's a man who uh, was interested in three things. Uh, The written word, how we sort of write and share ideas. Uh, Communications networks. He helped build the postal system as we know it today, almost single-handedly. And finding novel uses for the brand new science of electricity, which he had largely sort of pioneered. So what would he want us to do? I think he'd want us to use the science of electricity to build a communications network through which we could share words. And that's the sort of... Piece of that's that's missing is some kind of public infrastructure for information technology, and I think once we get there, the people will go, "Oh yeah, why were we using this private system that like steals all our shit?" But I worry about it a lot because, especially for very young people who have grown up with these systems their whole lives, and I tell parents of young kids this now. You know, the the companies are developing these sophisticated models of your kids based on the pictures that you post of them as babies, and it's going to use that to like shape the way it markets to them, which will shape their educational choices and their life choices. And like, it's, it's just like, uh, gotten, it intervenes in our lives now to an extent that really creeps me out. And that, uh, I think most people would be uncomfortable with if they understood the extent to which it's true.
0: Do you think that's actually a feasible reality of being unleashed from the chains of big tech and having a, a free, flow of communication of com- information
1: a, f- a feasible reality come on man that's an objective yeah of course i think it's a
0: feasible reality i mean yeah like have you
1: um, are you familiar with web 3 <laughs> i've heard a number of people say things like web 3.0 usually what it means is let us keep doing what we've been doing but worse yeah
0: i mean the pro- like from my understanding the promise of web 3 is essentially what you're explaining is re- like removing the power from the big tech giants and giving it back to the people like decentralizing it and having it in- your own powers within yourself. So
1: if if I have not heard anybody referring to Web 3.0 and actually talk about what I'm talking about, which is a publicly built, a public system, a kind of public Internet. Um, so I'm suspicious of people who say Web 3.0 because it's that's usually like the tech companies trying to have more of their way. But I but I hope that whatever I guess the thing is that like I'm not at all happy with 2.0, which is this private landscape that we have now. So I don't want to call it 3.0 because 2.0 sucks. What I say is I want a public internet, like public parks, like public roads that's publicly built, publicly maintained, and publicly policed. And the verb for to make something public is to publish. And so my like you know campaign plank would be i want to publish the internet it's pretty simple and yes i
0: think it's feasible a lot of people go
1: oh you know that sounds complicated well yeah it's like it's ambitious but it's a goal so i
0: mean when i say feasible i don't mean like it's possible i mean like do you think that could actually happen given the landscape of the current internet which is all held within facebook google apple microsoft all that like do you think any regulations will be can possibly be put in place to remove that power And do so in a effective way.
1: That's a good question. The answer is yeah. I mean, I remain an optimist uh, in that I'm a hundred percent certain that if we decide right now that change is fucking impossible, change is fucking impossible. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you have to believe in it and in yourself for it to be possible in the first place. So yeah, of course I believe that that's possible. Now, how do you get there as a matter of public policy? That's complicated in America. Um, but I do believe that it's possible and I don't think it's necessarily something that we need in terms of regulation, like a big thing saying what you can and can't do on social media or regulating Facebook. I think it's more, I like to think of it in a more positive sense. Like it, once you build the public option, people are going to naturally gravitate towards it because it's going to be open and free for real. You're going to see that like there is such a thing as organic content bubbling up the thing that's so maddening the the failed promise to the internet of of the internet to me is if it's so great, if it's connected so many people, if it's supposed to be this democratizing influence, how come I don't see all these wonderful new artistic voices, right? Where's the website where I go to listen to like the best new musicians from 50 different cities all at once and buy their albums. Where's the ones where I can go watch. Why aren't there a hundred awesome new short films being made that I've never seen before? Like why isn't there a flowering of creativity if this wonderful tool is supposed to be making it so free. And the answer is the tool's bullshit. The tool lies to you. The tool makes you think, oh, I'm sending this thing out to all my friends. No, it's not. The tool is only going to show your content to those users that it thinks will respond to your content. It's only going to tell you what it knows it needs to tell you to get you to keep interacting with it. It doesn't do anything for you. It exists only for itself. And it's just designed to suck shit out of you and give you as little back as possible to be able to keep operating. And so that's what's so um, frustrating about it, particularly for people like in the arts who are like, for young people who are seeking validation or like, um, you know, just support in their work, they put things out on the, on social media and And, like, I don't think that the youngest consumers know that what comes back is so fake. Like, you're not... That is not a representation of what your friends think or whatever. Like, yeah, the one comment that you got was from a real person who really made that comment. But, like, both when it was shown to that person, how it was shown, where it was shown, the system makes you afraid, is designed to make you anxious, like, is designed to undermine your confidence in yourself so that you will keep seeking validation from it, even though it knows it can never give it to you.
0: Have you been able to stay up to date with artificial intelligence progress and the new generative models? Uh,
1: Not like, you mean up to date with the like literature?
0: No, not literature, like the the new developments from uh, like Google, Facebook, all these kinds of things.
1: I mean, I'm familiar with the like... Frightening level of sophistication that generative adversarial networks have allowed uh, AIs to achieve. Yeah.
0: So what I'm saying, like th- just recently in the past couple of weeks, there's a bunch of, <coughs> a bunch of new systems being released. One being the, Stable Diffusion is from an open source company, so it's I wouldn't characterize it or I wouldn't categorize it in the same sense as I would categorize some of the things produced by like Google, Facebook, all these. But Stable Diffusion was a, a generative model that was. Somebody used this to put it into a, or they produced an art image and they submitted it to an art uh, art contest. And this image created by Stable Diffusion won the contest. And people didn't know that it was created by artificial intelligence at the beginning, so that like it was fine. But then once that was uh, discovered, everybody got, obviously, rightly so, got mad. But this is, in my eyes, is kind of just the beginning of these big tech companies and artificial intelligence labs kind of taking away the creativity from artists because if you can create an image that competes with and is judged to be better than art created by humans or these similar things can like 3d generate humans hypothetical or like
1: like deepfakes yeah
0: deep i mean like these kinds of technology are becoming so advanced that they can create 3d models of people and like the way i envision this is kind of a doom and gloom way of it but with these 3d models that like what's the point of having an actor film or actor act in your movie if you can just have one of these 3d models to do that
1: yeah i mean it's it's uh your right to be doom and gloom about it right like it's the the metaphor that i use all the time is we've built these big powerful machines because like a corporation is really a machine. If you think about it, right. It's just executing. It's the set of machine code. It's assembly instructions, which are profit over everything. You know what I mean? And you, and there are humans in it who are making the decisions, but even the humans, the executives subvert their own wants and wishes to the be- larger profit mo- model or motive of the corporation to the desires of the machine uh intentionally like that's that's what we do that's as good employees um but the problem is that if you let the machines be in charge of everything and the only instruction you give them is make the whole thing go faster which is basically what you say by maximizing profit um the machines will eventually figure out that they want to engineer the humans out of the system because the humans are slowing it all down and i think you're starting in subtle ways to see that now that like they're the the and and that will happen in ways that like you, we don't even necessarily know. I think about this a lot about like does did did Facebook ever like write and release an algorithm in the early days that said make, you know, maximize if you if you you could give you you could go into a social media platform and give the engine an instruction like I want you to maximize the monthly consumer spending of our users. But I'm not going to tell you how build a network, you know, figure it out, go. And you could let that run for seven days and you come back and and it says, and the machine says, Hey, I did a great job. I convinced uh, the least lowest spending 2% of your users to commit suicide. And you're like, Oh, Oh fuck. That's, that's very bad. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, did that ever happen there? Well, we don't really know, but it could have. And like, does that happen now? You know what I mean? Like, if that were happening, would we know it? Like, these are really kind of, like, deep and frightening questions, but I I do think that they're worth asking because I can't imagine that that did happen, right? That you're like, maximize the spending, and the system doesn't know, oh, well, this kid killed himself. <laughs> oh, shit. Like, that's really, really bad. But the system doesn't know that it's as powerful as it is, and it, it if you... So I worry a lot about us relinquishing all sort of human control by like letting the machine run itself, particularly in a country where we've then said, okay, yeah, all politics is for sale and you can spend as much money as you want on that and the machines can buy politics too. Okay, great. That's like a guy who comes in and he's like, "Yeah, I know you told me to mow the lawn and cut down that tree, but I tied the lawnmower over to the chainsaw. And now they're running each other." <laughs> you know what I mean, you're like, "That's not going to work out good, bro." Um, so yeah, I
0: it's um I worry about these things,
1: but I do believe that change is possible.
0: Going back to Facebook. I'm curious what your view is on their big push for the metaverse and virtual reality. I, <laughs> I saw an
1: advertisement for that, like a, during a football game. And I was like, these motherfuckers are advertising The Matrix on TV. <laughs> like, like I, I was li- like, is this an ad? I, at first I was like, is this even a product? Like, it, this is an advertisement for The Matrix. It's like, calmer, gentler, kinder in the metaverse. You will be productive in the metaverse. I was like, no. <laughs> ah! Um, there was a big story in the New York Times about this, about, uh, you know, the Facebook is about the future of the company, and blah, blah, blah. It's t- I think that's total shit. The headsets are gimmicky. They're cool for a minute, and then they're not that cool. I built a VR experience at um, UConn. We tried to deploy it. We went to this like, conference and talked to the other VR people. Stereoscopic virtual reality is like the next big thing. It's five or ten years away from being super mature, and it always will be. <laughs> like It's been that way for the last ten years, and it's going to be like that for the next ten. I think that was a stupid bet on Meta's part. But I also think that that company probably has to, like, think of ways to pretend to be trying to make stuff because all they do, like, how are they so profitable and they make absolutely nothing? The answer is they're just a harvester. They're cheating. Um, And so I think that there's... And they can't, like, stop cheating because they don't... Because they have all the... Like, they have this massive data swamp that nobody else has. And so they're sort of always going to be profitable um yeah i think anyway i think the metaverse is all bullshit it's a waste of time
0: fair enough well i'm curious so you mentioned to me earlier that you are part of the or you're writing the book instruction manual for the u.s skydiving association (laughs) yeah i'm curious how did this come about that seems very out of like left field it's a
1: bit that's a bit farther afield from our earlier conversation yeah the um so I started skydiving uh, in 1999. I was working at a Boy Scout camp and I was like, I want to learn to skydive. I went, I jumped, I loved it, uh, fell in love with the people and the culture. And so I've been a skydiver skydiver, and then skydiving instructor kind of as like my side hustle. So like between college and grad school and then between grad school and my first job, and after I got divorced and didn't have a place to go, I would go back to the skydiving place and work there like temporarily for the summer because you can work as an instructor and it's like being a ski bum kind of, which I also did. Um, it's a fun lifestyle pays. Okay. You get to work outside. Uh, and so this year, um, I pandemic was super bad for me personally and professionally. Uh, and I had some health problems in 2021, but in 2022, uh, I was like, okay, I pandemic's over. I just want to get back on the road, do some consulting. And I saw this opportunity. They were, uh, issued a request for proposals to write the new, um, instructional handbook. And because I had written an illustrated music fire, I was like, well, I'm interested in that. And I called them and said, do you have any actual skydiving instructors? Um, Excuse me. uh, Interested in doing this? And they said, no. Do you want to do it? And I said, sure. Um, So we worked at a deal where I would uh, travel while I wrote it. And I spent most of the time in California, um, several weeks out there, uh, and then traveled back across the country. So uh, it's been fun and interesting. Um, Skydiving was really an influential thing uh, for me because of the sort of cohort of people that I got to meet through it. And trying to write um, the instructional book was also really fun because it's uh, Scott Evers aren't as a cohort like very scholarly, you know. <laughs> like there's there wasn't a lot of extant uh, written material, but I did travel around and talk to a lot of old timers, and um, you know, I felt like I was sort of just transcribing some homespun wisdom about how to keep yourself safe out there. Um, and it was also fun because it's uh, because I think that people who come. And want to learn to skydive or many of them are looking for something a little bit deeper Um, and so that's really fun for me
0: you mentioned this earlier I'm curious like how because like when I imagine people like going for a spiritual experience like I always just like immediately think of psychedelics and all that I don't really can't really see how skydiving could contribute to a spiritual experience I know you're looking down on the world and you're just floating but like for my experience skydiving it wasn't very spiritual obviously I wasn't Going in with that intention of having it be spiritual, but could you elaborate on the spirituality aspect of it?
1: Sure. I I mean, I think for a lot of people, the um, spiritual side of it comes from the fact that it's dangerous, that they're like doing a thing that feels to them way outside the comfort zone of their normal lives. It's like a lot more dangerous than they would ordinarily do. It feels like them a wild and crazy sort of departure from uh, ordinary existence. Uh, and there and, and it is risky. I mean, I, you know, the, it, people do get hurt and killed. And so um, I think for a lot of people it just comes from that. You are a relatively young man. Um, young men in particular are less troubled by the prospect of death than uh, most other humans, which is why we uh, send them to do it so frequently. <laughs> um, I've gotten a little more afraid of it as I've aged. Uh, but so the um, it's not I like you when I started was like this is just fucking cool like I just was into it because it seems so cool and it is by the way so cool because you have complete three-dimensional freedom to manipulate your body in space like you can fucking fly that's so badass and like if you are doing it with people who are good and you have time to like work on some cool stuff you could do some really cool shit that just like feels really good and fun and it's super empowering and it, and it is challenging and hard and it, like rewarding in lots of ways uh, but for lots of people, especially who come to it later in life, uh, and I think more so for uh, women who whom I've met uh, who got really into it, um, it, part of the attraction is that it's like flirting with death a little bit. And as you, when you learn to do it yourself, you like you have to accept that responsibility more so. I mean, if you just come to make one jump at, on a, what's called a tandem, meaning you're attached to an instructor, we do our best to take care of you, and people do get hurt um, so, sometimes, unfortunately, doing that, but it's very rare. People who are training to be skydivers on their own, uh, you know, you the, I, you're going to wear your own parachute, and like uh, whether or not you live or die out there is going to be up to you, not to me. And for, and so, and when you jump on your own, like my my first instructor Ricky used to say this, he, he said, you know, listen, every single time you leave the plane, you're committing suicide, unless, unless you decide on the way down that you want to live and you open your parachute. But you don't have to make that decision. You know what I mean? Like you've decided that death is two minutes away. So what I want you to do is forget about that for 1 minute. We're just going to have some fun. <laughs> and then after the first minute is over we'll open a parachute. And that's what you're going to about it. And so I was hit, we, he was a very um Rick Hustler was his name. He was a, a good last name. He's a great, he was a great guy. He passed away several years ago unfortunately. but um he was uh, a very scarred veteran of combat of the Vietnam War. And I think for him, skydiving was like a, a chance to get some of the same like uh, stimulation and adrenaline that you get from combat, but without any of the killing. Um, and so he he was a really influential mentor on me, and and I and I've absolutely did like gain some sense of empowerment and control over my own like. Headspace and dealing with my own past trauma and just like m- managing my own life. Um, n- s- the, the skill, the s- literal survival skills that I've learned as a skydiver have been really influential in my life.
0: Well, to change gears, I have two more questions for you, and then we conclude. The okay, song. good. How many gears you got? Uh, Jesus, around like six, <laughs> six, gear right now. Um, yeah, I'm curious, what have been your favorite books that you've read that have made the most impact on you throughout? Oh, your life? gosh. books that I've read or any of the best lessons no
1: no I mean I I think of lots of good of good books you know I as a young man I found very influential (laughs) sorry technical difficulty there As a young man, uh, I found the novels of Ayn Rand to be very Uh, influential. She gets a lot of blowback these days about being like, "Eh, eh, she was anti feminist, which is probably true. Um, And like this very kind of like privileged male view of the world. "Eh, Okay. But like, whatever. As an angry 17 year old, uh, the character of Howard Rourke or of John um, Galt, who had not just unique ability, but the like, strength of character to pursue their visions even at tremendous personal expense um those were inspiring uh books to me as a young person and I, i'll also say um i really love moby dick i read moby dick once a year <laughs> <laughs> i know that sounds fucked up but uh, but i like that book so much that i not i don't read it once a year anymore but i read it like every once in a while i'll be like i should go read some Moby dick and i'll go read M- moby dick again um because it's really good and it's Descriptive about whaling in in a in a very uh, entertaining way, and it's descriptive about every time I read it, I get something new and different out of it. The, the level of complexity of Melville's characters is really good. The quality of his writing is really good.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. So I've actually never read Moby Dick before. And you you should, you,
1: and you, sh- you should. When you get to like the the fin back or the monkey rope, those are the chapters where it's like. Oh, okay. You start to see that he's using this thing to say something much bigger. Um. Anyway, that's a re- It's just a. Re- it's a. It's a good book that people like don't go read as much as they should.
0: I don't think I've ever heard somebody recommend to, recommend me to read Moby Dick, but you know, I will take your recommendation. That's
1: your, the the podcast is broadening your horizons. It I'm it sure. Is very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And finally, what advice would you give to your younger self if you were in the age that I am? Quit drinking. Quit drinking. Yeah. That's a good answer.
1: I mean, that it's an easy one for me because I was an alcoholic for a long time. Uh, and I think I squandered, uh, a number of, uh, what would have been productive years in my late twenties and early thirties. Cause I just was at the bar getting loaded instead of like out doing, uh, more productive things. Uh, and, and oh, I'd have a lot of myself for you. If you're a lot younger than I am. I'd have a lot of advice for my younger self. Um, To just like be, but so not everyone has a drinking problem. Let me think of something that's uh, more useful. Um, my advice would be to do, this is advice that I still try to give myself now, I'm almost 45, um, and still try to follow is do the thing that scares you. Always like if you're, there's two options. You're like, Oh, there's this and there's this, but the other one scares me. Do that one like that, especially when you're young. Because you'll stop doing the scary thing as you age, I promise. Like, you'll you'll be like, oh, comfort's nice. I'm old. I'm getting cold. What the fuck? Uh, but while you're young especially, like, take the risk. Always, always, always take the risk. If, I mean, not, like, the physical risk. Like, I, I have to temper that advice to skydivers because oh, we're going base jumping and I'm going to call it. And it's like, no, no,
0: no, 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 no,
1: no. But to, especially to, like, people who are in college and are thinking – I don't know. Should I just throw my guitar in my back of my truck and drive out to LA and hope for the best? Fuck yeah, you should. What's gonna happen? I don't know. You're gonna get, you know, mugged, and no one's gonna like your music, and you're gonna be a failure and come home. But you'll at least have had the experience, you know. Like, I think it's a Twain quote that I tell my students frequently. He said, um, "Rarely do I meet a man who reaches the end of his life regretting the things he did." But very frequently I've met men who at the end of their lives regret the things they did not do. And I think that's probably true, right? That you don't – you, unless you're contemplating some terrible crime, right? Like if what you're weighing are life choices, it's always easier to make the safe choice. I was thinking about this when you said the thing about um, undergraduate is very much about uh, full satisfaction and you're about sort of checking these boxes and get a 4.0 so you can get into med school. Like, I know some people who did that too and, like, got the 4.0 and they got into med school and then got the doctor job and then got the perfect wife and then got the perfect house and then got all those things. And then it's the 2.5 kids. And you meet them now and they're like, oh, I'm so fucking bored. Like, I have no idea what to do. Like, I, I'm working my ass off to make this money, but it all gets spent on all these things that we have. And, like, I don't, I'm bored. I'm bored out of my mind. Like, I, what, what, you know? So I think that there's, um, The hardest thing to do as a young person, especially in America today, I think is just like decide what it is that you want. That's going to make you feel good. And don't worry if you chase that thing for a while and then change your mind. (laughs) Like, don't decide what you want to do with the rest of your life. Just decide what you want to do next.
0: Uh, And don't
1: be afraid to take the risk.
0: That was very nice. Thank you for that.
1: I shouldn't say don't be afraid. Take the risk, even though you are afraid. Right, courage is not not being afraid of something. That's stupidity. Courage is being afraid of a thing and
0: then doing it anyway. Yeah, there's a quote relating to that. I, I'm just gonna like the general idea of the quote is saying that everything good comes from fear. Like once you once you conquer that fear is when the the greatest reward is gonna come. And that similar to what you're saying. So yeah, thank you very much for that. That was very that was very nice. Cool. Well, once again, I would like to thank you for this conversation. This is. Um, By far, my favorite conversation was very informative. I'm going to go read Moby Dick now. I mean, do your homework, too, dude. I got to do that, of course. (laughs) Yes, thank you very much.
1: Thanks very much for having me on, Ethan.
0: Before we go our separate ways, I would like to leave you all with a quote from the author, John Gottschall. We are, as a species, addicted to story. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. If you liked this podcast, then please give my channel five stars on your preferred podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in and until next time.